Well, with the official end of the Thanksgiving season, in a sense, as you heard Martha pray in a prayer of confession, the Christmas season is indeed upon us. The official season of Advent is still a week away. That's not stopped many from getting out Christmas decorations. We saw and greeted many of our neighbors yesterday, hanging lights and wreaths all around our neighborhood. It really is a wonderful time of year. For Americans, of course, it's never too early to move on from the gratitude of Thanksgiving to the wish list of Christmas. Uh, Back in 1939, President Franklin Roosevelt actually moved Thanksgiving up from the fourth Thursday of November, as President Lincoln had proclaimed it to be, to the third Thursday in November. The reason for moving Thanksgiving up a week? Well, in 1939, the fourth Thursday of November would fall late in the month, November 30th. So retailers lobbied President Franklin that people would not start their Christmas shopping in earnest until Thanksgiving, after Thanksgiving. Black Friday, anybody? So with such a late day of Thanksgiving, November 30th, retailers would only have 24 shopping days for profit. So President Roosevelt gave in to the lobbyists and moved Thanksgiving up an entire week to give retailers the benefit of an extra shopping week during Christmas. It wasn't a Black Friday. It was a Black Friday week. Roosevelt's choice nearly divided the nation. As calendars, all you planners out there, calendars were now incorrect. Schools who had planned student vacations and midterm tests now had to be rescheduled. And some states decided to stick with Lincoln's traditional date from 1863, while others didn't. People soon began to chide Roosevelt's choice and his apparent hubris, referring now to Thanksgiving as Franksgiving. That lasted for two years. Until Congress passed a law the day after Christmas in 1941, back to the days that Presidents Washington and Lincoln had declared it to be the fourth Thursday in November, and so the nation was united once more on a single day to give thanks and has been ever since 1941. Well, this morning, I want us to return to Paul's Thanksgiving prayer in Colossians 1. Would you locate Colossians 1, the second half of the Christian Bible The point is, the official Thanksgiving season has ended, but our thankful spirits should not. Because Thanksgiving does mark the end of one season, but it also announces the commencement of another one. And our Thanksgiving feasting, our Thanksgiving should crescendo into Christmas because we will celebrate Christ was born to save. The baby boy of Bethlehem, conceived of a virgin, is the supernatural sign whom God himself gave to an arrogant king named Ahaz in 700 B.C. That infant would be called Jesus because that infant, that baby boy, would grow up to save his people from their sins. Sing out and tell now, all will be well now. Christ in the stable, Jesus is born. So here comes Christmas time, and let the spirit of thanksgiving continue indeed. As George Herbert, one of England's most cherished pastors and poets, wrote in a lovely poem called Praise, seven whole days, not one in seven, I will praise thee. King of glory, king of peace, I will love thee. Seven whole days, not one in seven, I will praise thee. So as Thanksgiving now blooms like a poinsettia into Christmas, 
we can spend seven whole days, not just one, giving thanks all the more as we remember the supernatural sign of the virgin birth that Christ was born to save. We do indeed have plenty to be thankful for. So this morning we're returning to Paul's Thanksgiving prayer that we looked at last week to begin with. Paul is showing us, as we listen to Paul pray, Paul is showing us what to pray for. He's also showing us what we should be thankful for. And he's showing us when we should pray, how to pray, what to pray, when we should pray, and what we should be thankful for. So last week we meditated at the very end of this prayer in verses 12 and following around the Lord's Supper. And now I want us to look at the entirety of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer. And as Paul prays and gives thanks... For his church, this church he hasn't even visited, we learn to pray and give thanks for churches like ours. So I want us to notice in Colossians 1 how Paul begins, just recovering some for last week, how Paul opens his letter to a congregation he's only heard about, but he's never visited. Are you in Colossians 1? Look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, this part is printed here in the inside of the, the order of worship that you have. So Colossians 1, verse 3, Paul opens his letter like this. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So what's Paul doing? Well, he's giving thanks to God in prayer for this church in the ancient city of Colossae. It's located now in the southern half of Turkey. And he's thanking God for what he's heard about a church that he's never visited. Look at verse four. Paul explains that fact. We give thanks to God since we heard of your faith. And from whom did Paul hear this good report about their faith in the gospel? We'll look down at verse 7. Just as you learned this gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then Paul makes it clear for a final time down in verse 9 that while he's nevertheless, he's never visited this church, He's still giving thanks, unceasing thanks for this congregation because he says in verse 9, and so for this reason, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He even tells them in chapter 2, verse 1, that I'm struggling on your behalf even though I've not, quote, seen you face to face. So Paul opens his letter. He's expressing his constant prayer of thanksgiving for a church he neither planted nor visited We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, of your love in the spirit. Now, remember, beloved, if Paul gave thanks to God in prayer for a church he had never once visited for faces he had never seen, then we can give thanks for one another. The local church is one of the best, most precious gifts that God gives to us. And not only that. But Paul's example here is one of the reasons we often pray for other congregations besides our own congregations near and around the world. Why? Because Paul says in verse six, opening this, the gospel's bearing fruit not only among you, but it's bearing fruit all over the world. And wherever Paul hears the gospel bearing fruit, Paul stops to pray for the growth of local churches near and far. And notice when Paul is praying. He says, we have not ceased to give thanks for you. I know that. But under what circumstances is Paul praying for this congregation? We tend to gather for extended times of prayer when things are going poorly, 
We send out our prayer list. Would you remember this? I've got a test coming up. Somebody's sick. I'm out of work. That's when we concentrate extended unceasing times of prayer. That's fine. That's good. But notice when Paul is expressing constant unceasing prayer for this church, he's doing it in a church that he hears is not about to split, but a church that's doing well. He's praying without ceasing for a church because he's heard things are going so well. And Paul says, I'm not going to stop praying for you. I've heard things are going so well. When I hear good things going on in another church, I want to pray all the more. Advance, advance, advance. So Paul begins this letter with an expression of thanksgiving that shows up in his prayer life for a church that's doing well. And Paul is saying, do it again. Do it more. Do it more. Do it more. Now, that's the spirit and the context in which he prays. But I want to recover why Paul is giving thanks in particular for these believers in this congregation. Why does he give such extended, unceasing thanks to God for people's faces he couldn't even recognize? Well, look at verse four. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Yes, but why, Paul? Well, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints and because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Here is a a marvelous constellation of virtues that evokes prayer and praise from Paul. Faith, love, and hope. I heard of your genuine faith, not in yourself, but in Christ. I heard of your love, not for yourself, I heard of your love for all the saints and that faith in Christ and that love for the saints, Paul says, has in some measure arisen because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In this context, Paul does not set faith, love and hope all in parallel. He says your faith and your love in some measure is based upon the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he gives thanks that your faith in Christ and your love for the saints has has grown out of the soil of your hope laid up for you. Well, what is the hope laid up for them and us? Well, in short, it's all that awaits the Christians because of Christ and in Christ. That's the hope. All that awaits Christians because of Christ and in Christ. And he will spend the rest of the letter talking about the preeminency of Christ compared to everyone else. So I always give thanks to you. Why? Because I have heard of your genuine faith in Christ. I have heard of your love for all the saints, which springs from your certain hope and all that God has prepared for you in Christ. Now, think of that just for a moment. These three gospel virtues, this this trinity of, of virtues, can serve as things that we not only pray for as we go to the membership director for one another, but we can talk about. We just spent the last hour, as we do when people come into the church, hearing their conversion story. We don't have to do a wait for membership interview for that. This week, meet up with somebody from church and ask them, tell me how you came to put your faith in Christ so that you can rejoice in the faith they have in Christ. What's your story? They also can serve as the basis from which we encourage one another. Um, consider how Pastor John Robinson used the certain hope that we have to encourage those who lost loved ones. John Robinson was the beloved pastor of the Pilgrims 
He sent half over to the new world and he remained behind with the other half who could not go. And reflecting on the hope laid up for us when death was much more common at a young age then, with death all around him, Robinson comforted bereaved believers with these words, thinking of the certain hope. We are not to mourn the death of our Christian friends as they who are without hope. There is no reason to mourn on behalf of the deceased as God would raise them up to a more glorious light. Nor should bereaved Christians feel abandoned by God, but we should take occasions by their deaths to love this world the less out of which they are taken and love heaven all the more where they have gone before us and where we shall forever enjoy them with Christ. So Paul begins with the prayer of thanksgiving for a trinity of gospel virtues, for their faith, their love, and their hope. And those things he sees, we should notice in our body and give thanks for and pray for more of it. But did you notice something? Paul still hasn't told us what he's praying for. He told us why, but what is he praying in particular? You know where you find him, his praying? You put it this way. Verses 9 to 14 are the content of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer. And 3 to 9 are the basis of his Thanksgiving prayer. So let's look now. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at the content of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer. Verses 9 to 14. Would you read this passage with me, please? Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Here is what Holy Scripture says. And so, or for this reason... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what I'm praying. I'm asking that you may be filled as a congregation with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding for this purpose, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom as beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is the word of the Lord. And the end of Paul's thanksgiving prayer. Now Paul has one main request. And one main purpose. And his one main request and his one main purpose are characterized by four things. Let me show you each and then we'll go back and look at them. It's just recovering a bit from last week and then we'll dive in. First, the main requests of Paul's prayer is in verse 9. He prays that the church will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And at this point, Paul is not talking about circumstantial will. Should I take this job? Should I date this person? Should I buy this car? He's talking about the revealed will of God that's in Scripture, that you would have all knowledge about his will and you would be filled with spiritual understanding to know how to walk in light of that will. So his main Thanksgiving request, you would be filled with the knowledge of God's revealed will. And at the beginning of verse 10, he shares his main Purpose in this Thanksgiving prayer, he wants the congregation to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that, verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So my main request will work itself out and this big purpose 
that believers will walk worthy of the Lord. In fact, you could say the purpose of Paul praying for the knowledge, them to be filled with it, is so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the heart of Paul's prayer is that request, that this congregation would continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then Paul says, now here are four things that characterize a church walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I pray, rest of verse 10, you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, number one, by bearing fruit, number two, by increasing in the knowledge of God, number three, by being strengthened with all power, and number four, by giving thanks to God the Father. So those are the four things Paul prays for to characterize our walking worthy of the Lord. And they work like this. Actively bearing fruit, actively increasing in the knowledge of God. Now a change, passively being strengthened and actively giving thanks. So that's this broad outline of Paul's prayer. Now let's go back to listen to each part as Paul prays. So first, let's let's take the request and the purpose together. Paul is asking they would be filled with the knowledge of his will so they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does this mean? mean well when paul prays in particular that this church would walk in a manner worthy of the lord here's what he does not mean he's not praying that they would live in such a way that they would earn or deserve the favor of the lord paul is not saying live in such a way that you make yourself worthy of the lord that's not what paul's praying friends god does not love you because you are lovable God loves you because it's in his nature to do so. And when you realize that you can't make yourself worthy of God's love, it will do at least two things in your heart if you think about it. For those who think they are worthy of his love because you think you're a good person, that will offend you when you hear you can't make him love you. That will offend you. God doesn't love you because you're a good person. What does the word say in Romans 3 There is none good, no, not even one. John Stott, the Anglican minister now with the Lord, said, until you see the cross as something done by us, you cannot see it something is done for us. Until you see the cross as something done by you, you will not see it as something done for you. You need to be humbled before you can be forgiven. You can't make yourself worthy of his love. Second, when you realize you can never live in a way to make yourself worthy, it helps you hope in his love alone. When you get over being offended, it will sink your hope deep because our final security does not rest in our love for him, but in his love for us. And if Christ did not forsake you on the cross, when all of hell opened the guns of hell and fury on the body of the Lord, do you think he will forsake you now that he reigns from heaven? So walking worthy of the Lord, can I put it this way? Doesn't mean earning, it means reflecting. So when Paul prays we should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he means we should walk in a way that we reflect the worth of the Lord, not reflect, not not earning, reflecting. Let me give you some other examples of how the New Testament uses this word worthy or worthily. John the Baptist uses the word in Matthew 3, 8, when he says bear fruit worthy of repentance. He can't mean bear fruit in order to earn repentance. 
He means bear fruit to reflect the nature of your true repentance, not earning, reflecting, bear fruit in keeping with bear fruit that shows that reveals the nature of your true repentance. So put that back in Colossians one. And what you have is this stunning reality that when Paul prays that our lives as a church would walk worthy of the Lord, he means that our lives would actually reveal the worthiness of the Lord. I am praying that your life as a church would reflect the worth of the Lord to your city. I'm praying that your life would reflect the surpassing worthiness of the Lord. What a prayer Paul has. And think of the privilege. Think of the privilege that churches like ours have, that by our lives and by our loves as a church, we have the opportunity to display, to reflect the surpassing value and worth of Christ. That's what he's praying. Let me put it this way, coming at a different angle. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says, so what I, when he's talking about Christian liberty, and he says, what I'm trying to convince you of, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What Paul wrote there, that's what he's praying for here. I am always praying for your church, giving thanks to you, so that every part of your life as a church, your texts during the week among one another, your lunches together, your members' meetings, how you handle mutual hurts. I'm praying that in every part of your life as a church, you would magnify the worth and the value of Christ, fully pleasing Him. Make His surpassing worth and beauty undeniable as you live out every part of your congregational life. That's the purpose of His prayer. And no wonder He's praying for it, because how would it come about except God did that? And if you relate now Paul's purpose to his petition that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, then I think Paul means something like this. As you are filled with the knowledge of his inscripturated will in the Bible, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Because as we do his will, as our lives are conformed to his will in every area of life, we'll show the worthiness of God, of Christ, in every area of our life. That's how the purpose fits the request. As you're filled with the knowledge of his will, you will start showing the worthiness of the Lord in every way. That's the heart of his prayer. That should be the heart of our prayers as a congregation, that we would live in such a way. Paul's not just saying this to you and Starbucks. He's saying this to churches like ours when they're gathered together on a Sunday morning and they read this word. This is what I'm praying will happen as you do life together as a church family. As you do life together, I'm praying that every part of your life would reflect the supreme, surpassing worth of the Lord. Every part of it. And that will happen when you are filled with the knowledge of His revealed will and you live in light of it. It's quite a purpose. It's quite a purpose. This hit me last night. I was over, our family was over in one of your homes last night enjoying the beginning of the Clemson game. I had to leave and go home and finish the sermon. I had to finish it. I took the dog out for a walk. Did you see the moon last night? I did. You probably did. It's called a beaver moon right now in November, named because beavers grow particularly active in November under the full moon to build their winter dams. It's like the Lord says, there's a full moon, and the beavers say, yes, sir, we'll get to work. The moon was beautiful last night, a silver sphere glowing against the 40-degree cold night sky. 
And just to the east right now, you can see the planet Jupiter. Yet even the red-eyed glory of Jupiter shines really small to that silver-orbed glowing moon right now. And as I walk the dog and I'm thinking of this text, something hit me like this. It's, it is wonderful. It does it every month to me. I don't know why. I'm, it, it's a beautiful. Every month it happens. To me. That's an amazing moon. And last night it was especially, maybe it wasn't, but it was especially silvery and glowing. At least I thought that's what it was doing to me last night. And I thought it's wonderful to see the full moon reflecting the glory of this. It has no light. I'm a, I looked it up real quick. It only shows 5 to 12% of the sun's light. And that's what 5 to 10% of the sun's light looks like in a night winter sky. And it does something in the soul. And it's even more glorious when a congregation like ours reflects the light of the Lord's glory and the night darkness that we live in. That's what he calls a church to. That's how beautiful I want you to. Do you see how beautiful Christ is? Now make him look stunningly, breathtakingly. Stop your walk and look at Christ beautiful. So that's what he prays for. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord so that your church reflects the worthiness of the Lord like the full moon does in the middle of November. That's what I want your church to do. Now you say, well, what would a life like that look like? Well, Paul now moves from this theological point of his prayer and he's going to give us four characteristics of what walking in a manner worthy of the Lord looks like for a church. What would it mean for a church to showcase the worth of the Lord? First, four things. Look in the middle of verse 10. He says, people walking worthy of the Lord, verse 10, will be those who are bearing fruit in every good work or in every good work bearing fruit. Now, later, Paul speaks of walking worthy and bearing fruit in every good work like this. He takes these concepts of walking worthy and bearing fruit, and he puts them together in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know this text. We're saved by grace through faith, and that salvation, that faith and grace are not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then he adds this in Ephesians 2, 10, where he puts our fruit bearing and saving grace together. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So so all those terms in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, walking worthy and bearing fruit, are there in Ephesians 2, 10, which you put together means something like this. We have not been saved by our works, but we have been saved for our works. He has ordained good works beforehand. So Paul's not praying. He's he's not praying that our lives. He's praying that our lives would now reflect the purpose for which we have been saved, namely to bear fruit in every good work. The gospel's brought new life and the life of this congregation in southern Turkey. And now Paul's praying that that new life that's taken hold of your congregation would result in you bearing fruit in every kind of good work. I'll give you a few examples of this. Our last members meeting, we commented this at our elder strategic meeting. Uh, Pastor Rep brought this up right right after here. You're sitting right there. Jennifer Coke comes running up after here and she says, if you ever have membership classes 
and somebody needs somebody to watch their kids over two days, I will do that. You know what that is? That's bearing fruit in every kind of good work. Even as I was talking, Beck and I were talking, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Where are you going to be? I heard, now I don't mean to leave anybody out, but I heard everybody we asked at least said, oh, somebody's already invited us. Somebody's already, you know what that is? That's bearing fruit in every good work. Paul is praying the purpose for which he saved you, good works, that you would bear more fruit. Keep bearing more fruit. Here's one. We can pray for this time of year. Let's not grow by more people joining our church coming from another church. Let's bear evangelistic fruit. Let's not steal sheep. And sometimes you've got to move. I'm not meaning any of that. Sometimes you've got to do that. But here's one way we can bear fruit as we think every December, missions are the purpose of the incarnation. Christ came to seek and save the lost. That child in the manger is on a mission to hunt sinners down like you and me. And let's join him, especially this time of year, in seeking sinners. Let's pray that we as a church would bear fruit in this particular way. Let's bear fruit. Pray that he'll do it. Pray that he'll do it. We've not been saved by our works, but we're saved for our works. And as you bear fruit and every kind of good work, you will show forth the worth of Christ. And beloved, there's also a warning here because there's no such thing as a believer whose life is not bearing fruit for him. Fruit bearing is not only a part of Paul's prayer, but it's a sure shine. It's a, a sure, can I? Fruit bearing is a sure sign. Can I keep the agriculture metaphor? Fruit bearing is a sure sign that your heart has been fertilized with the gospel. If there's no fruit, you have no assurance that you're a true believer. Second, people who walk in a way that showcases the surpassing worth of the Lord are people who are increasing in the knowledge of God. In other places, The ESV translate this word increase as grow. The Lord Jesus tells us, consider the lilies, how they grow. Same word. Peter commands us to grow in grace. Same word. Second Peter 3.18. So I think just for a moment, at least in keeping with Paul's agricultural image of bearing fruit, we could translate it this way. People walking worthy of the Lord are those who are growing in the knowledge of the Lord. But what exactly does he mean growing in the knowledge of God? Well, he can't simply mean the church grows in intellectual knowledge, understanding more about him, because later the half-brother of Jesus can say, you say that you have faith, for you believe there's one God. Good for you, the NLT translates it. Good for you, but even the demons believe they tremble in terror, but they're not converted, James 2.19. So Paul is surely praying for more than a belief and growing knowledge about God's existence. Now, here's a caution for us. One of the the great dangers of growing up in Greenville or Malden or in a Christian home is thinking that because you know about God, that you have a relationship with God. That's a great danger. And hell will be full of people who knew all about God. Judas, one of Jesus' own 12 disciples. This is what J.I. Packer describes in his classic work, Knowing God. He says there's a great difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. We may know as much about God as John Calvin knew, he wrote, yet all the time we may hardly know God at all. 
So this prayer should awaken an affection and a question in our minds that makes us stop to think, do I know God or do I know about God? Has your life been transformed by his love? Are you bearing fruit? Have your loves been so transformed that you have a manifest love, not just for your friends, but for the saints, the people of God? If not, you may know about God, but you probably don't know God. So so back to the text, Paul, Paul is not praying for intellectual knowledge that's deepened, but he's praying that a congregation would grow in their knowledge of God, he means something like this, that they would grow in their experience of God himself. He prays something similar to the, to the church in Ephesus when he prays in Ephesians 3.19, I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's not praying that the church would know about the love of Christ, but they would experience the personal love of Christ in ever-increasing ways. Or when Paul gives his own autobiographical note in Philippians 1, he puts all of his self-righteousness, all of his working in the soup kitchen, all of his working for Meals on Wheels, all of his giving to a church, all of his memorizing the Torah and the Bible verses, he takes all of those things that we say evidence that we know God, and he puts them on one side of the scale. And he says, you can take all those things and you can put them in the garbage can next to actually knowing Christ. I consider everything as loss next to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as my Lord. It's rubbish that I might gain Christ. I want to know Christ. Do you see, do you hear what Paul's yearning for out of his own heart? He wants this church to experience more of it. I want you to know. I want you to know him deeper and richer and personally. And as a congregation, I want your church to experience more of God, more of his love. And I'm praying that would be true for you. So there's all the difference in the world between knowing God and knowing about him. And I pray that your church, that your church would grow and bearing fruit, and it would grow in knowing God and your relationship with Him. And when you do, when when that's happening in your life as a church, you now will be showcasing, you will be reflecting the worthiness of the Lord. That's what happens with churches who bear fruit. That's what happens with churches who increase in the privilege of knowing God. Now the third way Paul prays for this church to reflect the worth of the Lord, bearing fruit, growing in knowledge. Now he switches nerd point, passive voice, verse 11, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Let me show you three grammatical points that highlight the emphasis of what Paul is praying. First, in the language of the original text, Paul places that phrase, you're looking at verse 11, he places that phrase with all power at the beginning of the sentence. So he's praying with all power being strengthened. There's his emphasis. Second, at least in the ESV, what I'm reading, the words strengthened and power are the same form of the word. And it'd be really clumsy in English, but you get the force and emphasis of what Paul's praying if you put his request like this. With all power being powered. With all strength being strengthened. It's a way that he's grammatically emphasizing this idea. Third, when he says, with all strength being strengthened, he puts it in the passive voice, which means this. 
He's not praying that you would man up, that you would dig deep, that you would cowboy up and find a way to empower yourself. He's not telling you to look in and dig deep and run the last mile. I had to tell myself that. I tried to run the 3K downtown Greenville. As I came to the I said, dig down, bomb, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. My son was 10 minutes ahead of me. I was already embarrassed enough. I got, he's sitting at the finish line. There you go. Well, there's a metaphor in that. I'll meet you at the finish line somewhere. So that, but Paul's not saying that. He's not saying, I'm praying that you would learn to dig deep. He's saying just the opposite. He's saying, I want you to be strengthened with all strength. And you should say, by whom? And it's a divine passive, meaning by God. The following phrase tells you, I want you to be strengthened with all strength according to the power of his glorious might. And when he says you're strengthened, not by your own power, but according to the power of his glorious might, notice the extent of the power that God wants for a church like ours. If Paul would have, I think this is true. You think about this. If Paul would have prayed for us to be strengthened out of God's glorious might, I think that means the empowerment might have a limit. If I give you money out of my riches, I may have a lot of money, but I'm not giving you everything that I have. I'm giving you something out of my riches. But when Paul prays for us to be strengthened by God's mighty power, he doesn't say, I want you to be strengthened out of his power, but according to it, which means he's praying, he's asking God to bring the full force of his limitless power to bear in the life of the church. All of his power, according to his power. Thus, the extent of the divine empowerment is not out of, but according to all his power, a power Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1, he showed supremely when he raised Jesus from the dead. That power, I'm going to put it at work in your congregation. And remarkably, now you think, man, I'm going to raise the dead. I'm going to walk on coals of fire and make people believe in God. That's not why he says the power is given to us. You, it's, that's not very fun. Did you read the rest of the verse? The divine empowerment is in accordance with God's omnipotence and it has a purpose. The rest of the verse being strengthened with all power for endurance and patience with joy. I don't know if this is true agriculturally, but a tree, a fruit tree has to endure the harshness of winter if it's going to bear fruit in the spring. And Paul is praying, I am praying for you according to God's resurrection, unlimited power, that he would strengthen you to endure the winter seasons of life, that you would bear fruit and show that he's worthy. Like Job. Nobody see People see God as more valuable to you if you say, like Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And people go, he's that much to you? I'm praying that you Colossian believers, whatever hardships you face, your own sins, infighting as a church, uh, uh, external persecution, that you would be strengthened with all strength for endurance and patience with joy. The test of every Christian virtue is endurance. A faith and a hope and a love that don't last long aren't worth very much and they're not genuine. 
So Paul prays not that we would avoid the trials of life, but being empowered with all of God's power, we would have all endurance to endure. And in God's normal and gracious way, what he commands, perseverance, he provides. And how does he provide it? Oh, Lord, strengthen this church with all of your strength that they might do what you command of them to endure and suffer long, that the Lord might be seen as beautiful as he really is. And then comes the fourth and final characteristic. We looked at that last week. What is it? I mean, you, you get this. If you follow his line, your heart just wants to go giving thanks to God the Father. He opens this chapter saying, I'm giving thanks to God in my prayer for you. And he ends this prayer saying, and what I'm doing, I want you to do. I want you to take this prayer and give thanks and pray. Advance, Holy Spirit. Advance, Holy Spirit. Take your word. The fourth characteristic of walking worthy of the Lord is that we would give thanks for our astonishing salvation. He's qualified you to share in an inheritance. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. He's transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. And right now we are experiencing the forgiveness of sins. This is the heart, not only of Paul's prayer, but also of all our thanksgiving. Congregations who in their lives show the worth of the Lord are those who give thanks most and best of all for the forgiveness of sins. Listen, And it's not just that you are forgiven. It's that we are forgiven. And that's what holds us together. We're forgiven by His love. And friends, never forget, we we are thankful. What we are thankful for the most reveals what we value the most. And the only thing, the main thing that He gives thanks for this church, that He desires for this church He's never seen, is that you would learn to give thanks all the time for the forgiveness of sins that you have. So at the nourishing center of the Christian life are congregations with thankful hearts who cherish most their shared forgiveness of sins. Chief among our blessings as a church. Chief among our blessings is the fact that our sins have been dealt with. That we're to thank Him because we are His people, qualified. We've been delivered from sin's tyranny, redeemed through His Son. That's the origin of all our thanksgiving. And a thanksgiving that has begun should never end. And so Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for gospel growth in a church. And I say to us, church family, guests, friends who are here, may this be our prayer for our own church. Or maybe you're visiting from a church. May it be a prayer for our church, your church, as we move now from the season of thanksgiving to the season of Christmas, from the end of this year And the next year, here's what we pray for one another. Let's end our service. I'm going to pray this prayer for us. And we'll have a moment of silence and then a song and we'll be done. Father, thank you for the faith in Christ represented by the dear brothers and sisters who are here. Thank you for their love for all the saints that's manifest in our midst. This faith and love arises from our hope and all that you, Christ, are for us and have laid up for us. We pray as a church family that as you have, you would keep filling us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom. 
so that our church and every true gospel preaching church like ours would reflect the worthiness of the Lord fully pleasing to you that we would bear fruit in every good work. That we would grow in our experience of you and your love. That you would strengthen us with your strength for endurance and patience with joy. And that we would keep abounding in thanksgiving for such a great salvation that we have. 